Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, our guest is Tom Work, Executive Director of the National Association of Wine Retailers, also the founder and owner of Work Communications, and the writer for Fermentation, the daily wine blog. Tom, welcome to the show. It is a pleasure to be here. I've been listening to you guys for some time. And I got to say, by the way, you have been doing some outstanding work with wine writers and reviewers of late. Jeb Dunnick's interview in particular was really fascinating. Awesome. We're glad you enjoyed it. So in this episode, we really want to talk about the three-tier system and you being the executive director of the National Association of Wine Retailers has kind of a, a very wide purview to the three-tier system and its impact on retailers and wineries in general. But I was wondering if you give us a little a bit of your background before we jump into that topic and how you ended up at the National Association of Wine Retailers. So I grew up in Northern California and started getting interested in wine. I must have been 18 or 19 years old. My friends weren't interested in wine, which meant that I would sort of scurry up from Marin County to Napa and Sonoma on my own. I was 18, 19 years old. No one cared. I just went to the tasting rooms. They poured me wine. And I started to learn a little bit that way. Then I decided to go to college. So I first went to Humboldt State University and there was this one little place, this one little liquor store where everyone bought their kegs, right? But they also had this little wine section. I had started to learn about wine, but the people who worked there were jerks and they were always mean and nasty to me. I was a little bit older than some of the other people there. And so I got back at them by going into their wine section and finding the BV Private Reserve and then taking the label off the barefoot or the price tag and putting it on the BV. And they had some other things there. They had the Chateau Montalena. Um, They had some little nuggets there. So I got to taste the good California wines for very, very cheap while I broke the law and got back at those guys. And so that was the start of my wine education. But after that, I went down, I got a master's in history and didn't want to be a historian. So I decided I had to work for a living and I got a job at a wine PR firm in Santa Rosa, California. And that suited me just fine. But I was there for three years before I did the math, figured out how much I was being paid versus how much the clients I was servicing paying the firm, I thought to myself, that doesn't work out. So I started my own firm and I took three of the clients with me and that was Work Communications. And that was in 1993 or 94. And so I've been consulting ever since then with wineries, retailers, associations, media, all having to do with wine or alcohol. In 2004, I decided that everyone needed to know what I had to say. So I started Fermentation, the daily wine blog, and started writing a lot about regulation. And at the time, DTC shipping and the controversies surrounding that were really starting to be talked about more. And I started to do a lot of investigation and a lot of writing on that. And I was very pro DTC. And it was very clear at the time that there were certain constituencies that were preventing wineries and retailers from shipping direct. And I was fairly vocal about my feelings on that issue. And I got a call one day from John Hinman. He's an attorney in the um, alcohol beverage space, and he was one of the board members of the newly founded National Association of Wine Retailers and asked me to be the executive director. They had grown to the point where they needed one. And I realized that if I took that position, I would start to get paid to say the same things that I had always been saying. And that sounded good to me. So ever since 2008, I've been the executive director of that association, and it's grown and grown even more. And I'm extraordinarily proud to help lead that organization. Is it unusual that 
you're the leader or the executive director of the Association of Wine Retailers, but you've never been a wine retailer? I don't think so. I mean, there. I think I could work in a retail shop and do a fairly good job of it, but there are a different skill set necessary to head an organization or a trade association. So a lot of it is fundraising. A lot of it is chasing the cats around the room and saying, hey, where are your dues? A lot of it is working with the media. A lot of it is working with lobbyists. And a lot of it, in my case, actually, is doing a lot of working with litigators on lawsuits across the country, representing the association in front of the trade. So it's a sort of a different skill set, leading the association versus being an actual retailer. That is not to say that I don't understand how retail works. I hear from my members on a sort of a regular basis, and we're constantly talking about the challenges that retailers have, and particularly in this environment. So to give our listeners some context, who are the members of the Association of Wine Retailers? So they're almost all independent fine wine retailers. So, for example, we don't have grocery stores who are members. And it's not because we wouldn't welcome them into the fold. It's just that grocery stores, for example, are less concerned with our issues. So it's you would know a lot of the members. It's it's the KNLs and the Zackies and Grapes the Wine Company and a lot of different wine clubs, small independent fine wine retailers that tend to specialize in hard to find wines, unique wines, rare wines, collectible wines. A lot of them specialize in certain kinds of wines, but for the most part, they are those progressive retailers who look not only in their local area for customers and clients, but they're willing to look nationwide to serve particular niches. So you can imagine the kind of retailers that gravitate toward this association. And how many members do you have? Right now, we're just over 100 retailers nationwide, which is not bad. It could be a lot better. We estimate that there's roughly roughly about 500 retailers nationwide that are sort of trying to actively use the internet and interstate shipping to do their business, whereas there are roughly 400,000 licensed retailers across the country. I think we have a pretty good representation of that that group of what I call progressive retailers who are really trying to serve what is a growing niche of people looking for unique wines. Okay. So it sounds like your membership is a certain segment of the wine retail space. You mentioned grocery that has different issues. How do you think about the wine retail space in general in terms of each of its segments and how big is each segment? Well, so let's be clear. The vast majority of the wine that's sold in the United States is probably $15 and under. The vast majority of that wine is sold in grocery stores and convenience stores and drug stores, depending on the state that you're in. And that's got to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 75% of the wine that's sold. And then after that, You've got DTC from wineries, and then you've got small independent retailers. Inside that small independent retail sector, I don't count the likes of Total Wine or even BevMo, really. They're slightly different animals. They operate in more than one state. They'll have, Obviously, Total Wine has, I don't know how many stores they have now. So they're slightly different, too. So I think of the market in three different ways. I think of them as sort of the bulk of purchases that are happening in grocery stores and convenience stores and drug stores and such, and big box stores. And then you've got these sort of multi-state retailers, there's a few of them. And then you've got more of the niche independent fine wine retailer. And each of them sell usually different kinds of wine, or the bulk of the wine that they sell is of a specific kind and of a specific price point. So the niche independent wine retailers that you're mostly representing, what are the unique challenges that they face that require the NAW or the National Association of Wine Retailers to exist? Well, all of our members, again, are concerned with 
finding their customers and clients wherever they live. And they recognize that they live in an economy that is not bordered by walls created by states. So if there is a retailer in New York who has found a client in Washington state who's mad about high-end burgundy, they'd like to cultivate that client. However, it makes it difficult to do that when the laws of Washington state make it illegal to ship wine into that state. So that's the primary challenge for fine wine retailers. A lot of people, when they think about interstate shipping and wine, and they think about Amazon. Now, as you know, Amazon is not in the interstate wine shipping business yet, despite the fact that they own numerous alcohol licenses via Whole Foods. They could get into the business right now, and everyone really is dreading the moment that they do, because with that marketing power that they have, they could scoop up a large part of the marketplace. And so one of the things that my members are concerned with is laying the groundwork for that day when Amazon decides they want to take on wine. And so we believe that the only possible way for an independent small wine shop to compete with Amazon is, ironically enough, to be allowed to ship direct. And the reason that is, Amazon could get in the business, despite the fact that only 15 states, 16 states, allow interstate shipment of wine into their state. Right now, Amazon, if they wanted to, could set up AmazonWine.com or WholeWine.com, whatever it is they want to do, and they could start shipping to most of the states in the country. And they would do it in the same way that Wine.com does it now. So the way Wine.com ships to so many different states is they actually have retail licenses in a lot of states. They don't have storefronts, but they have retail licenses. And so if you're in Iowa and you go to Wine.com, they'll ask you, where is this going to be shipped to? It's going to be shipped to Iowa, you tell them. And so the inventory that you see are wines that they've procured from Iowa wholesalers so that they're shipping intrastate, not interstate. Amazon could do that right now and probably capture immediately 25% of the retail DTC marketplace or the retail shipping marketplace, but they haven't. But our members are concerned primarily with changing the laws in states so that they're able to ship to as many people as they possibly can across the country. The other issue that our members are concerned with is procurement of inventory. In most states, it's a requirement of state law that a retailer buy only from an in-state wholesaler. You can look at any state you want, and wholesalers in any given state, all of them combined, will usually offer no more than 25% of the wines that are available nationwide. And all the retailers in a given state have to buy from those same wholesalers. So it's difficult to distinguish your inventory, what you're offering to consumers from the store, from the other guy. And so the only way to change that is through self-distribution because wholesalers are not going to pick up more brands. So progressive retailers understand that they need to be able to buy directly from importers, no matter where they are. They need to be able to buy directly from wineries, no matter where they are. In most states, you can't do that. That's going to be the next really big challenge that retailers have. And for that matter, that producers and importers have. There simply are not enough wholesalers to represent all the different brands that are available in the states. So I'm curious then in terms of, I mean, obviously you've covered a lot of points of the problems that your members are dealing with that you're trying to address. Is there an overall mission and purpose outside of that, like a, at a high level, like a longer term view for National Association of Wine Retailers that is more than just the problem set that they're facing right now? Well, it's about modernizing U.S. regulatory landscape. 
there are a lot of industries that are regulated in one to one degree or another, but there are very few that are regulated to the degree that alcohol is regulated. Everything about the industry is regulated. And the vast majority of those regulations were written in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s during an economy or an economic marketplace that is gone, doesn't exist today in any, in any fashion. We believe that the marketplace needs to be significantly modernized. And that's our overall mission. So we support almost any legislation that will modernize and liberalize the alcohol marketplace. We understand that alcohol is a substance that can be abused. And we understand that outrageous marketing practices ought to be discouraged. And we understand and believe that the drunk driving needs to be discouraged. But we believe that there are ways to do that without diminishing the ability of different sectors of the industry to innovate. And right now, a lot of the regulations that exist and have existed for decades, they diminish the ability of players in the alcohol industry to innovate. Would you say that the regulation is for alcohol is higher than even like tobacco is, or are they on par with each other? I'm curious. Well, the fundamental thing about both of them is that they provide tax revenue for the states, and the states are very, very concerned about that. There was a time in the United States where states did not generate revenue as much from sales tax or or income tax, but rather from excise taxes, and that tradition is still going strong. Each state tends to bring in tons and tons of revenue via excise taxes on alcohol. So I think it's fair to say that alcohol is probably regulated far, far more than tobacco. And so one example is, again, a retailer in New York can't go outside his state or outside their state to get their hands on inventory. They're required to buy from a middleman. There are some states where you've got craft brewers who want to sell their own beer in their own tasting room or in their own brewery. And in order to do that, they need to sell their beer to a wholesaler who will and deliver it to them. And then the wholesaler has to sell it back to them and deliver it back. Think about that for a second. So there are all sorts of different kinds of regs like that. You got things like franchise laws that don't exist in the, in the tobacco business where once a wholesaler represents your brand, if you're a winery, represents your brand, say in Georgia, there's no way to leave that wholesaler except for good cause and good cause under the law is defined so narrowly, you're wed for life. And so if they decide they don't want to move your brand, if they don't want to feature your brand, your brand will sit there and you have to actually buy them out of the contract. And it's an absurd way to do business. Yet these are things that are placed in law by state legislators. So the degree of regulation for alcohol is, is huge, huge. So if the high-level mission is the modernization of this industry, which I think Peter and I are very supportive of as well, how does one go about achieving it, your mission, especially because it does seem like a, the money or the, it's a little bit of a David or Goliath situation where the money's really on the side of either the states and their taxes, the big retailers like groceries change, or even the, the BevMo's and Total Wine. So like, how can you help achieve this mission with it being a, a small subset, but powerful subset of these, you know, 100 fine wine retailers? So you have to pick your battles, right? So, for example, we do a lot of lobbying. But, I mean, again, there are 36 states that we want to change the laws in. But we're not going to try to introduce bills into 36 states every year. So we have to pick and choose our battles, right? So we'll decide, okay, this year we're going to try to do some work in Illinois, Washington State, and New York State. 
And that's going to be the totality of what we do for a number of different reasons. I mean, everyone's limited in terms of the funds they can spend on lobbying, with the exception of the wholesalers. They're not limited. So we have to pick and choose our battles. We also are advocates of litigation. Our view is that states that allow their own retailers to ship direct to consumers in those states, but ban out-of-state retailers from doing the same, are violating the Dormant Commerce Clause of the Constitution. And so we're very, very happy to support litigation in a number of different states, which we do. There are currently eight federal lawsuits in eight different states challenging just exactly those sorts of laws. And there will be another one here soon, probably in the next two or three weeks, that will also support. So we do a lot of lobbying. We do a lot of litigation support. We do a lot of education, too, of retailers and the media. And then we try to cultivate our allies. On the issue of direct shipping, our allies are very small in number. Wholesalers don't support retailer-to-consumer shipping. They always oppose it in every circumstance. They're afraid that miners will kill themselves if they're able to uh, receive shipments, which has never happened, by the way. So there's that. They don't support us. Retailers, the vast majority of retailers, have no interest whatsoever in retailer-to-consumer shipping. So they actively oppose laws that would liberalize shipping laws in the state because they don't want the competition. Wineries don't support retailer shipping. On the other hand, they don't oppose it, but they simply won't go out of their way to support it. And importers are not even in the game, which is surprising to me. In the entire time I've been doing this, importers have never really worked to modernize shipping laws when I really think they should, because they are the functional equivalent of wineries. And I think importers should have been fighting for their right to ship direct many, many years ago, but they haven't. So they don't get involved with it. So our allies really come down to two different constituencies. Consumers. When a consumer hears that they can't receive a bottle of wine from Joe's wine shop out of state, they ask, what do you mean I can't receive it? How is that possible? And then when they find out that they can receive a bottle of wine from an out-of-state winery, but not an out-of-state retailer, they're further flummoxed. They don't understand what the hell is going on. Why could that possibly be the law? It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And I'm I simply have to nod my head and and sympathize with them. So consumers are always willing to ally with us when we sort of need their help in lobbying lawmakers in different states. And then the media tends to be on our side, too. And the media react to these sort of restrictive shipping laws in the same way consumers do. Writers and reporters and the media tend to be libertarian when it comes to commerce. And I've yet to find any member of the media who wouldn't support or who wouldn't denigrate the idea that consumers ought not be able to access the wines they want. So those are our allies, and we try to cultivate them on a regular basis also. So we've kind of jumped in and talked about the three-tier system, but for our listeners who aren't that familiar, could you give a high-level overview of what the U.S. three-tier system is and its history and main functions? Sure. So the three-tier system came into being in the post-prohibition environment of the 1930s. Prohibition ended in 1933, and the states had to decide how they each were going to regulate alcohol. And they really had two concerns. They wanted to prevent Tide House laws, and they wanted to prevent the influence of organized crime. A Tide House is when a producer of alcohol, say a brewery, controls the retailer or a bar or a tavern. They give them money for marketing and whatnot, and they force it, and they require them to sell lots and lots and lots of alcohol. The bar 
will then engage in some very sort of sketchy marketing practices to move as much alcohol as they possibly can. Come on in and get free lunch and dinner if you buy six bottles of beer. Sure. Or if you drink six. I mean, this sort of stuff was happening on a regular basis prior to prohibition and it simply destroyed, destroyed communities and families and the alcoholism was rampant prior to prohibition. And so when prohibition ended, they wanted to make sure that didn't happen. They also wanted to make sure the organized crime element was not in alcohol. So they created this thing called the three-tier system where they separated the tiers, producer, wholesaler, and retailer or restaurant. First of all, retailers were forced by law, by state mandate, to buy all of their inventory from a wholesaler. The wholesalers were the only ones who could buy alcohol from producers or importers. And this is how they separated out the tiers. The Tide House element of it was accomplished, or stopping Tide Houses was accomplished by making laws that said there would be no vertical integration. A winery can't own a retail outlet. A wholesaler can't own a winery, et cetera, et cetera. They had to stay separate. That's the three-tier system. In the 1930s and 40s, it sort of made sense because you had tons of different wholesalers, but you didn't have that many producers. So the wholesalers were competing for who they could represent. Flash forward to the 1980s and things start to change, right? Small wineries really start to flourish and they multiply in number. At the same time, wholesalers start to be reduced in number as consolidation happens. Today, 30 some odd years later, you've got a really relatively small group of wholesalers in the country who are trying to represent 10,000 different wineries and God knows how many imported brands that are coming in and they simply can't do it. But we still have this three-tier system. So you have a situation where in many states, in order for say a winery to be able to have their alcohol or their wines sold on the retail shelf in that state or sold off of a wine list in a restaurant, they have to have representation by a wholesaler in that state. But the wholesaler is not required to represent anyone who wants to come into the state. So wholesalers can essentially shut out and act as gatekeepers, and they only bring in a relatively small number of brands into a given state, which means consumers in those states only have access to whatever brands the wholesaler wants to represent. This three-tier system exists in one degree or another in most states. you got states in California where producers and importers can sell directly to retailers or restaurants. Now, I've advocated for the demise of the three-tier system for many, many years now. And what I mean by that is I think it would be very, very good policy, and I think it would be it would cause real growth in the alcohol beverage marketplace if producers could sell directly to retailers and restaurants and go around the wholesaler. Some people will come back and argue that, how are you going to operate without a wholesaler? The point is not that the wholesaler should go away. Clearly, large brands, even medium-sized brands, will still use wholesalers. It's just that they won't be required to by state law. And that's really the holy grail of opening up the alcohol beverage market, is giving everyone more flexibility to enter the markets they want to enter to, they want to enter into. And so it's a matter of trying to remove that state mandate to use the wholesaler. That said, as you can imagine, in states where the law says you have to use a wholesaler, those wholesalers, once they're consolidated down to two or three large ones in a state, those wholesalers become extraordinarily powerful. They all have two or three lobbyists working in every single state. I do reports every four or five years about how much wholesalers contribute to state political campaigns, and it's in the tens of millions. Wholesalers will contribute 10 times as much 
to state political campaigns as wineries and retailers combined. So when a wholesaler walks into a committee hearing on a bill that would might open up the state for retailer shipping, they know everyone on the committee. They've given $5,000 to everybody on the committee that year. And the deference that's paid to the wholesaler and to their position, no matter how bad their arguments are, is significant. And so that's what everyone's up against is a wholesale tier with very, very bad arguments and lots and lots of money. So you have mentioned how it's the system differentiates itself in various states. I am curious on if there's some other examples, because I know some states are, are way more complicated than others. But I'm also curious on why it differs so much by each state in terms of, I mean, I'm assuming it's some aspect of Republican governments being able to, to drive their own destiny. But uh, I'm just curious if you have a little bit more background on why is it so different and in, in historically from state to state? I mean, believe it or not, we are a, we're a republic where each state governs itself. And because of the 21st Amendment, each state alone devises its own alcohol laws. And it has its own history and it has its own issues. It had its own issues with alcohol. So every state did it a little differently. While the three-tier system framework was sort of put in place in most states, each one was a little bit different. Um, and so as a result, today you have slight differences in every state that make it very difficult to operate in many states because the compliance burden in terms of understanding all the different laws and regulations is difficult. So for example, in Illinois, an out-of-state winery may sell directly to a retailer, but they can only sell directly to a retailer if they make less than 25,000 cases a year. And then they can only sell 5,000 cases worth of wine directly to retailers or restaurants in that state. Out-of-state wineries can't sell anything directly to retailers. They have to go through wholesalers. Other states, they can sell as much as they want. Cal well, not many states, but California is a good example. Washington is a good example where out-of-state producers can sell directly to retailers or restaurants. So it's, it's simply the difference of politics in a given state. I mean, quite frankly, sometimes the laws in a given state are shaped by a committee chairman where the alcohol laws go through a particular committee and that particular committee chairman has a certain amount of power and he'll create a series of laws over the years that reflect his view of alcohol um, because that's all it's going to get through the committee. In other states, you might have a committee that handles alcohol issues where there is no real strength in the committee chairman and they might be more liberal in terms of what kind of alcohol laws they'll allow pass through. And so you get this patchwork of laws across the states that have kept numerous attorneys in business. And as a result, you've seen a lot of compliance firms really pop up, particularly over the last 25 years, that really help producers and retailers and navigate their way through this morass of, of regulation. So I used to live in Pennsylvania, and obviously there you have a state store. It almost seems like it is essentially a monopoly where you have to buy your alcohol through, especially wine, fine wine, through the state stores. It just seems like that's a self-fulfilling prophecy if they get to mandate that we only sell alcohol through our state stores, and therefore we generate all the revenue. It seems so, in some ways, un-American. Pennsylvania is a really, really interesting state. It took them forever to allow out-of-state wineries to ship in. But to give you an example of how competent the uh, Pennsylvania liquor control system is, when the pandemic hit, they decided we really need to shut down all alcohol retailing. We don't want people walking in and touching bottles. So they shut down all the stores, right? Everyone in Pennsylvania made a mad rush for the borders, right? 
So all the states surrounding Pennsylvania were getting inundated with Pennsylvania shoppers buying alcohol during the pandemic because they couldn't get it in their home state. And the states around Pennsylvania, Jersey and other states, they're saying, hey, you guys got to get a hold of this, right? I mean, we're getting inundated. And these other states started asking for ID. And if, if your ID was not from within the state, they wouldn't sell you any alcohol. So after about three or four weeks, Pennsylvania decided that's probably not a good idea. So they rescinded that order and they allowed people, they allowed the stores to reopen. But then you've got a state like New Hampshire, which is also a control state like Pennsylvania, where the state is the retailer of the wine, but they allow out-of-state wineries and out-of-state retailers to ship into the state. So you have a situation where the retailer in New Hampshire is regulating the out-of-state retailers. So it would be no surprise to learn that a few years ago, they decided, let's just shut down out-of-state retailer shipping into the state. So they wrote a bill that would have stopped out-of-state retailers who had been shipping into that state for decades, would have shut them down completely. And I remember lobbying to oppose that bill. And the New Hampshire Liquor Control Board was absolutely shocked to find out that the out-of-state retailers opposed this. And they were shocked to find out that New Hampshireites opposed the idea of not being able to get alcohol shipped into them like they had been for 20 years. It's like there's this isolation bubble that a lot of regulators live within, and they don't quite understand the way an economy works and the way consumers act in a modern economy. And they're always shocked to learn that a lot of the things they want to do are not what other people want. So if I were to boil it down to like the top impact that the three-tier system has on wine retailers, you had covered... Their access to supply of product uh, is limited to in-state. I'm not able to sell to all states. And the other one would, like, those are like the two of the biggest main issues, right? Like that they don't have access to all the capital. Yes. The three-tier system really prevents a national marketplace. And it also prevents a diversification of inventory from retailer to retailer. It's why you, in most states, you walk into five or six different retail shops and you'll see basically the same wine on the shelf. And it supports the uh, legal and compliance industries. It absolutely <laughs> does. I, some of my best friends are attorneys. So do you think that the, you know, obviously the Amazonification of society, you know, everybody wants like instant gratification, shipping costs have been greatly reduced through efficiency or just by including it in the pricing sort of what Amazon has done. So do you think that this system is preventing the wine industry from actually satisfying their customers at large. So that is holding them back. The three-tier system is holding them back, fine wine retailers from actually giving the consumers what they want. Yeah, I look at it from the consumer perspective. So so let's take a state like the great state of Texas. In Texas, out-of-state retailers cannot ship into that state. So whatever wines are available to a Texan, they have to either buy at a local store or they have to have shipped from an American winery who gets a, a permit to ship in there. But what's left out in all that are imported wines. Texans only have access to the imported wines that Texas wholesalers bring into the state. If any really hard to find or collectible or coveted imported wines make their way into the state, they're sold almost immediately and they're scooped up and they can't get any more. Yet there are other states where Latour is languishing on the shelf, right? And if they could just have it shipped into them, the market would equalize. So the consumers in Texas are absolutely screwed by this sort of strict three-tier system. And by extension, obviously, retailers across the country are too. The inefficiency of the American alcohol marketplace is significant. And it's primarily, it's significant because 
You can't match inventory with demand when there's a three-tier system that's operating in most states. You mentioned that the distribution tier, or the wholesaler tier, has been consolidated quite a bit over, over time. I'm curious, I have heard from small wineries like in Oregon that have basically said, well, we can't even get distribution because we're just not at scale. And every, you know, once these wholesalers want to be able to service or offer something out to their whole network, if we're a small production winery, they don't even want us because we can't deliver, we can't meet the consumer's needs. So it's not even worth their time to serve as a part of that. Is that one of the big issues that wine retailers are facing is that they can't even get this, some of the smaller boutique things because their wholesalers only want to carry brands that they can support across their portfolio? Right. Okay. So you're a North Carolina retailer and it's that time of year where you go visit the different wine regions. You decide to go to Oregon, you head down into the Willamette Valley and you come across maybe a a great little 4,000 case winery and they're selling at least half of what they make out of their tasting room. Maybe their wines cost 50, 60, 70, $80 a bottle. But that winery also wants to distribute some of their wines across the country, maybe in white tablecloth restaurants. So if they want to distribute in North Carolina. They don't want to distribute that much. They want to sell maybe, I don't know, maybe they're willing to sell 100 cases into North Carolina. And so you have very few wholesalers in North Carolina. And the big one looks at this small Oregon winery and says, okay, they're going to sell us 100 cases. I'm going to sell 100 cases to Costco here in a single day. And in order for me to sell all these 100 cases of wine, and it's going to be across different wines, right? So it's going to be 20 cases of their Pinot, 20 cases of their Reserve Pinot, Chardonnay, maybe they make a something else, Sangiovese or something. They have to do all this work to introduce this wine to all these different accounts. And they're only going to have 20 cases of this or 20 cases of that to sell. And from their perspective, it's just not worth the effort. It's not worth the time. So why would we pick it up? And that's what the wineries are facing, but it's also what retailers in North Carolina are facing. They can't get it through their wholesalers and they're not allowed to buy it direct from the winery. They could easily call up the winery and say, you know, I would love three cases of that wine. And you're right, shipping has gone down a lot, right? So you put it on a consolidated shipper that's refrigerated now because there's much more refrigerated shipping. You get it out there in seven days, the retailer's happy to get it. They can feature it in their email and they distinguish themselves in terms of the inventory they have, but they can't do that. That's against the law because that's against the law. There's no good reason for it. It's just against the law. And that has to change in order for retailers to flourish. It has to change in order for the fine wine consumer market to really expand. The three-tier system retards the consumer market. It slows it down. We'd be selling more wine. We'd have more people interested in wine We'd have a higher, wine would have a higher share of the overall alcohol market if direct purchase from producers and importers was possible. Interesting. Well, we mentioned earlier that e-commerce and wine has been on the rise in e-commerce in general. I believe e-commerce and wine is around 10 to 12% of the entire retail market in 2020, boosted by COVID and some of the, the issues with the pandemic. How is e-commerce changing how U.S. wine retailers operate? So first of all, the 10 to 12% via e-commerce, that is not going to be via interstate shipment. That's going to be including the Drizzlies of the world and Instacarts and delivery from grocery stores. I always make the point of separating delivery from shipping. The shipping market is far smaller than the delivery market. So I want to say that. So it's possible today, if you want, to be an independent fine wine retailer in a medium to a large city and survive without shipping. 
either in the state or interstate. It's also possible to survive without delivery, without using the Uber Eats of the world or the Instacarts or the Drizzlies. It's possible to do that, but it's not possible to do it without working really hard to cultivate your consumer base. And in today's world, there's no other way to do that than digitally. You have to engage with the customer via email in a responsible way. You have to create a mailing list. And I think more and more, if you want to flourish as a retailer, you really have to create an experience for the, if you're going to be selling fine wines, you have to create an experience inside the premises. And that can be done in a variety of ways. It can be done simply by hiring a really great staff who works one-on-one with customers who come in. It means keeping track of what individual consumers buy and what they like. And it means when you get a hold of those two cases of whatever it is, that small Oregon Pinot, that you know exactly who's going to buy it and you service them, right? You don't send an email blast out to your 25,000 list. You send it out to that list of 100 people who you know covet small, good, small Oregon Pinot Noir. You have to work it a lot harder and you have to use your digital tools these days. Yes, you can survive by not shipping and not using the Drizzlies, but you can't survive without using digital marketing. I would argue that the day will come when Amazon wants to get into the business. And when that day comes, I think these a lot of the retailers that are going this path that I just described will in fact be put out of business. And that's going to be a shame, but it's going to happen. And the ones who are going to survive are the ones who have who look at the entire national marketplace as their marketplace. So that sounds like both an opportunity and a risk for small independent retailers. What are the other challenges that selling wine online has for retailers? Well, the number one challenge is being able to get the wine to the consumer. I can't tell you how many stories I get from our members of people who want to make $1,000 purchases of these wines they have. And the response, they get a phone call back and they're saying, I saw your you wanted to purchase a song. I can't sell it to you because I can't ship it to you. And I'm sure every one of our members have three conversations like that every day with the consumer. So that's a real challenge. The other challenge is compliance, right? Every state is different. So one state will require you to remit sales tax from that state. They'll require you to submit a monthly report, whether or not you sell anything into that state. They'll require you to send back a report that's comprehensive in nature. Other states, it's not so comprehensive in nature. Some states, it's every quarter you have to report. Some states, it's annually. Some states, it's monthly. Also, retailers have to submit to the legal jurisdiction of these states that they want to ship into. And there are significant consequences to that also. Compliance is a big, big deal. The other issue that retailers deal with is attempting to be a retailer and at the same time advocate for themselves as retailers. It's very difficult for an independent retailer in a state like New York to spend time reaching out to their representative or more than one representative or their representative and their senator and asking them to help ease the regulations that they're burdened under. But a lot of them will do that and try to do that. At the same time, they're running not just an online business, but they're running a brick and mortar business. And then if you want to walk back a little bit, some of the challenges associated with the COVID pandemic, as you know, have been have been significant. Retailers did well uh, during the COVID pandemic, but it was a challenge for them. A lot of them really had to pivot significantly the way they run their business. And then they also, retailers had to deal with other people doing the same thing that they're doing, but who had never done it before. So all of a sudden, a lot of restaurants 
were essentially becoming retailers, either by selling alcohol directly to the consumer in the package or drinks to go, that sort of thing. That sort of pissed off some retailers. Our retailers, our members didn't really care that much. So there was a lot of different challenges that retailers have now, whether they're working purely in a brick and mortar space or if they're working online also. So retailers are only allowed to ship, I think you said, to 14 or 15 states in the country, but wineries is much more, over 35, I think now. What's driving that difference? Well, starting in the late 80s and into the 90s and into the 2000s, the number of wineries started to explode in number. And they had to find a way to move all this wine, and they weren't going to be moving it through wholesalers. So they had to they had to ship direct to the consumer. This is also a moment in time where people started to visit wine country in a much more significant way, whether it was Walla Walla or the Willamette Valley or Napa Valley or Sonoma or Temecula, upstate New York, the Finger Lakes. And so more people got exposed to these smaller wineries and they wanted to be able to get it. And in a lot of cases, they could not get it, which wineries just started shipping to them, right? Whether it was legal or not. And wholesalers put their foot down and said, no, you can't do that. Regulators put their foot down and said, no, you can't do that. So the wineries went to court and they got their case to the Supreme Court, Grand Home v. Healed, and they won. A state can't discriminate against out-of-state wineries where shipping is concerned. But here was the thing. Once that Supreme Court decision came down, every state had a decision to make. They either had to shut down all shipping, both shipping from in-state wineries and out-of-state wineries, or open it up for both. Now, it's a very, very difficult for a state to look these small wineries in the face, who are essentially both farmers and manufacturers. They might have 10 or 15 employees and say, sorry, we're going to cut you off. You can't ship anymore. You don't say that to a small farmer and stay elected, right? And so they opened it up. They regulated the out-of-state wines coming in, but they opened it up for both, mainly because those small wineries in the States were very sympathetic characters, right? So now retailers aren't quite as sympathetic as small farmers, wine growers, people who are harvesting grapes and putting them into the hopper. And it's just not as sympathetic as that, right? They're, they're merchants. It's easier to discriminate against them. Also, as I said before, the vast majority of retailers do not want to ship direct. So you don't have this constituency of in-state retailers saying, yeah, 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 we want to be able to ship direct. Most of them are against it. So it's a really different dynamic. Wineries can now ship to 45, 46 states. They're almost done with that effort. Retailers are just sort of starting out. And we'll get there. We could use a Supreme Court decision, and that'll come to I'm sure the, the average person thinks of it as, hey, I'm buying wine from someone, right? I'm just buying wine. Why is it different for a winery than a retailer? Right. And so one of the things I mentioned earlier is we're, we're helping support eight different lawsuits in eight different states right now that challenge these restrictions on shipping. And so a lot of briefs, legal briefs, get filed back and forth. And the argument that the wholesalers make every single time in opposing retailer shipping is that if out-of-state retailers are allowed to ship in, it will destroy the three-tier system. Because within the three-tier system, wines that are sold in this state have to be purchased from wholesalers by retailers. Out-of-state retailers are not purchasing their wine from in-state wholesalers. And so that'll destroy the three-tier system. And one of the things I'm trying to get judges to understand is that when a consumer in Illinois buys a bottle of wine from an out-of-state retailer, it does not implicate the Illinois 
three-tier system because the sale took place somewhere else. There's nothing in Illinois' law or any other state's law that says it's against the law for you to buy wine from another state. The law says it's against the law for you to ship your wine to you in your state. But the wholesalers wanting to preserve the three-tier system and the walls that they've set up as a result of the three-tier system forces them to make this argument. And so some judges have said, yeah, 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 we have to preserve the three-tier system. So out-of-state retailers, you can't ship in here because the three-tier system is legitimate and you shipping in here will destroy the three-tier system. Hence, your lawsuit is no good. Other judges have cited the other way. So one of the areas that you had mentioned, part of the complication of interstate shipping is tax collection, which even Amazon hasn't quite figured out yet or how to start doing. Not that I'm sure they couldn't if they give enough time. What's the approach for a wine retailer in doing this? Like, how do they, is this one of those compliance companies can help sort this out for them? Or how do they navigate this if they want to start selling interstate to the states that they're allowed to sell to? So most states that allow out-of-state retailers, or for that matter, out-of-state wineries to ship in, they require that sales taxes are remitted to the state they're shipping to. And it's not hard to do, really. I mean, you write a check. Retailers are pretty good at writing checks. They write checks all the time. So it's not necessarily that hard to do, but when you're shipping to a lot of different states, you have a lot of different permits, you have a lot of different schedules on which sales tax or excise taxes have to be remitted. And in those cases, compliance companies really do come in handy. There are compliance companies that'll write the check for you and then they'll bill you and they calculate it all for that. But a lot of states when they argue against opening up to out-of-state retailers, they say, how are we going to collect our taxes? Now we collect all of our excise taxes from wholesalers and retailers collect the sales tax and remit it to the state. And I, I try to remind people that out-of-state retailers know how to write a check. They know how to transfer money electronically. And if you were to issue them a permit, they would fall under your legal jurisdiction. If they did not submit the sales tax, you can find them. You can do whatever you would do to a local retailer. So an out-of-state winery and an out-of-state retailer can follow the same process and just remit the funds to the state and is by law on the schedule as deemed by the state. Yeah, the transaction that happens when a winery sells and ships wines to a consumer and when an out-of-state retailer sells and ships wine to a consumer is absolutely identical. There's nothing about it that's different. The only difference is the diversity of wine that a retailer might sell, but the, the transaction is identical. So there's no reason why retailers couldn't do that. And interestingly, too, though, in those states where both out-of-state retailers and out-of-state wineries can ship in, it's the wineries that get the vast majority of shipping permits. 75 to 80% of a state's shipping permits will go out to a winery versus to a retailer. So the regulatory work on the part of the state is still going to be primarily at wineries because they're shipping. There are more of them shipping than retailers. And wineries have these compliance systems set up, like Ship Compliant is one of the big DTC compliance automation systems and softwares. Can retailers not piggyback off the same thing and, and do that? Yeah, Ship Compliant, Avalara, they both, and all the, all the uh, compliance companies, they all work with both wineries and retailers, and they have systems set up for both wineries and retailers. It's really a matter of flipping a switch, integrating the software, and making the payment. Finding someone who will help you do compliance is not the problem. The problem is finding a state that will force you to need a compliance company. So there's been a large rise of online retailers, everything from wine.com to Naked Wines um, and every other kind of subscription under the sun. How do you think these players fit into the wine retail landscape at a high level? Well, the likes of wine.com and, and Naked Wines and such, 
these are pure online plays, right? So they're sort of the vanguard, if you will, of training consumers how to buy wine online. And that's a real value, both wine.com, Naked Wines, and there are a number of others too. A lot of wine clubs out there that are purely online. They're very valuable in terms of showing consumers what can be accessed online, showing consumers what kind of experience they can have with an online retailer. So they fit into the whole scheme of things too. Naked Wines, Wine.com, they all deal with these issues too. Wine.com has been around for a long time. They've spent a gajillion dollars getting to where they are. They're starting to make money now, which is nice to see. They did real well during the pandemic. Naked Wines has knocked it out of the ballpark. They're just doing great, great work. So they're sort of the tip of the spear, as it were, in terms of training people to buy wine from online retailers. And for that, everyone is grateful. So what needs to change to have the change you're looking for on the three-tier system? Do you have a thoughts on when that could happen and how can we gain more consumer advocacy to get more awareness? Honestly, I think what needs to change is the Supreme Court needs to tell the states you cannot discriminate against out-of-state retailers. This is a fundamental violation of the Constitution. And you read our Grand Home versus Healed opinion from 2005, and you read our opinion from 2019 in Tennessee Wine v. Thomas that said Grand Home covers retailers. Now stop discriminating. That's what needs to happen. When that happens, a number of states will open up immediately and millions upon millions of consumers will have access to every wine available in the United States. So that has to happen. Where consumers are concerned, consumers are galvanized when there's an issue in front of them that they absolutely have to act on, right? So we spent a little bit of time trying to work with consumers, get them, get them agitated about the, the state of the online wine market. But unless they have something to actually do, someone to actually talk to, someone to actually email, someone to actually get angry with, it doesn't make that much sense to actively try to educate them about this issue. Now, we do interact with them on a regular basis, but it's when we have a bill pending in Albany or Springfield that retailers start to reach out to consumers in those states and say, you really need to do this. And we have systems set up where they can easily go and customize a letter and send it to exactly the right people. And that's when consumers really step up and do a good job of influencing lawmakers. Lawmakers, they're like squirrels, honestly. The last thing they see in front of them is the one that's of real concern to them. If you ever want to see an interesting dynamic, wait till there's a wine shipping bill that's being debated in a committee, right? And go watch it online. They'll usually stream them. And someone will come up and say, I'm a consumer, I'm, I'm Joe Consumer, and I want to be able to get this wine. I can't get this wine. You know, and the lawmakers, are, I, I understand, Joe. Yeah, I understand that this free trade is important to our state. We're free traders here, et cetera, et cetera. Wholesaler will then walk up and give his testimony. And the same lawmaker will say, we're going to defend this three-tier system until the lights go out. So don't worry about that. And meanwhile, Joe's going, wait a minute, what about me? And so sometimes you just want to be the last person to throw a nut out there, right? And the consumers are really good at throwing out nuts in front of lawmakers. So if you're a betting man, what would you guess is like a ballpark ETA for this to actually change? Well, it turns out I am a betting man. <laughs> so if someone said to me, what do you think the odds are of retailer shipping opening up in a large way in the next five years, I would say that probably the odds of that are two to one, which are pretty good, right? If I'm going to win one out of every 50 times or one out of every two times, probably going to bet a lot of money. So 
I think it's pretty good. And the main reason I think it's pretty good is that I don't think that the protectionist and discriminatory laws that are on the books in so many states are going to be able to stand in the face of these lawsuits. I think eventually the Supreme Court's going to going to say, no, 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 you can't do this. And we've told you now twice you can't do this. And now we're talking to you directly. You cannot do this. I think that's absolutely going to happen. And when that happens, states will have the same question in front of them that they had after the 2005 Grand Home and Yield. And that is, shall we shut down retailer shipping for all of our in-state retailers as well as out-of-state retailers? Or do we open it up to uh, all retailers nationwide? We'll see more states shut it down for in-state retailers than we saw for wineries. That'll definitely happen. But states like New York and Washington and Illinois, where there's a pretty good contingent of larger retailers who want to be able to ship direct, they'll, they won't let it be shut down. So I think this is a good chance within the next five years that we'll get the right kind of decision out of a variety of courts, including the Supreme Court. And then, of course, when Amazon wants to get involved, that's when things will change also. But the fear, by the way, the fear of Amazon is palpable, but not necessarily about from retailers. It's lawmakers. I mean, whenever we get a bill introduced and we have a committee hearing on that bill, the lawmakers are so concerned about Amazon. I mean, are we going to have Amazon just take over our retailers? Are all our retailers going to go out of business, they say? And I go up to testify and I explain to them, Amazon doesn't ship wine. They don't ship wine at all. And they just don't know what to do with that fact. Everyone assumes Amazon ships everything, but they don't. But when Amazon does decide to start shipping wine, well, that's when the ballgame changes. Interesting. Okay. Well, I know that it's on their radar. We'll see uh, see when they get into that space. So, Tom, we want to thank you for your time. With every guest, we always ask for a wrap-up question. What are you most excited about in the wine industry for the next 12 months? Well, I'm looking forward to getting back to normal, right? I took my first airline flight to an industry conference maybe three or four weeks ago, and it was to Reno, right? And Reno at that time was smoky and inundated by fires surrounding it and went to this cheesy casino. I cannot tell you how giddy I was to be somewhere. So I'm looking forward to the entire industry sort of getting back to normal. It's very difficult these days to understand where, for example, the retail industry is because we always benchmark, right? We compare to where we were. But I'm tired of comparing everything to 2019 because 2020 is an anomaly. 2021 continues to be an anomaly. And so I'm looking forward to a 2022 where we can look at a, a normal market and compare it to where we were. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to increased travel. And I'm looking forward to a year. And I just, I shouldn't even say this. It's, it's knock on wood. I'm looking forward to a year where there are no fires on the West Coast and the wine industry is not burdened by those sort of calamities. And so far this year, I can't believe I'm saying this, a fire is going to start. It's raining like hell right now in Salem. But I swear to God, just because I said that, a fire is going to break out in my backyard. Let's hope not. Yeah, we're, uh, last year was a little crazy on, on many fronts, from fires to uh, all the stuff of the pandemic. Well, Tom, very educational. Learned a lot about the three-tier systems and all the nuances and some great data points. Peter, I want to thank you for spending an hour with us uh, talking through everything. Much appreciated. Well, thank you very, very much for having me on. This is a real pleasure. I love what you guys do. So keep it up. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.